Hi guys, welcome to another episode of At The Source, a podcast full of food stories. I'm your host, Alex Ryder, and I'm in a really good mood because the sun is shining and it feels like spring is just around the corner. Today I'm chatting with Hugh Padfield from the Bath Soft Cheese Company. Hugh has cheese running through his veins. When his great-grandfather, Edward Ernest Padfield, a dairy farmer, moved to Park Farm just outside Bath in 1914, his great-grandmother began making cheese using milk left over from their cows. Hugh joined the business in 2015, stepping away from a successful career in marketing in London to co-run Bath Soft Cheese with his father. He's working to continue the family's legacy of creating award-winning, organic, delicious cheeses, including their Bath Soft, which is made to a recipe which dates back to the time of Admiral Lord Nelson, and their most recent addition, Merry Wife, which includes a cider-washed rind created using cider made by Hugh's father, Graham. Anyway, enough from me, let's chat cheese. Welcome, Hugh. Thanks for joining me today. Hello. Good to to be part of your podcast. Yeah, thank you very much. Right. Let's go right back to the beginning. So your family has been involved in dairy farming at Park Farm for four generations, but it was your father that made the decision to focus the business on cheese. Do you know why he did that? Well, so it's uh, it is interesting because um my family as well as having the kind of four generations of farming here, prior to that they had been farming elsewhere. And and one of the things that my father loves to talk about is how cheese making and dairy farming traditionally went hand in hand, that farmers would be used to having situations in which they couldn't sell their milk for drinking and they would make cheese. And my uh, my great-grandmother had made cheese and my grandmother had taught cheese making, but they stopped making cheese on the farm um, because of the regulations around selling milk to the government. Now, those regulations kind of loosened in the 1980s. And my father is of a naturally kind of inquisitive mindset. I would say that if anything, he he prefers his hobbies to um, to seriously trying to run a business and make money. <laughs> and so, um, so he had that kind of natural curiosity to do something else and he loved cheese. And so it was a natural thing for him to start experimenting with cheese making. But at the same time, he also, uh, he had four children and he was a bit worried that none of us would go into farming. He could see that farming was shrinking as an industry and was marginally profitable. And the thing about farming is obviously you are constrained by the land that you farm, that it's not easy, I imagine anywhere in the world, but certainly in the UK, to go, I know I'll I'll increase the size of my farm by 20% or 30%. And therefore, he wanted to create a business that wasn't just a farm, but was something more than that to hand on to his children. And uh, he settled on the idea of going back to cheese making like his mother and his grandmother had and trying to turn that into a business. And to be honest, from from my point of view, it did mean that coming back to the family business was a far more attractive prospect because once you've added that value to your milk, um, there's a whole load of possibilities of you know how good you can then make that cheese, where you can take that cheese, who you can sell it to, um, and and that makes it a much more interesting dynamic business than it would have been if it was purely farming. That's really interesting. So in a way, he was being very forward thinking, deciding to extend the business within the space that he had to to make cheese, but also was actually reverting back to something that was quite traditional and had happened in the past. Clever, clever dad. 
Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. And I think I think for farmers, farmers tend to be quite passionate about the family business and the continuation. They're very conscious that normally farmers, you know, farming has gone back in their family for as long as anyone can remember, because it's kind of one of the, it's possibly the most traditional of industries, and uh, and they're very worried about wanting to hand something on to their children and keep the tradition going. So all wrapped up in that. So your career actually has been in marketing uh, in a commercial space rather than farming. And you mentioned there that you're you're one of four children and your dad wasn't sure whether any of you would carry it on. Did you did you go into your kind of commercial career thinking eventually that you would return to the family business? Mm. I didn't actually. So when I was growing up on the farm, um, I had two brothers and a sister. and my older brother in particular was absolutely passionate about farming. And and so we always assumed that he would take over the farm. And uh, but anyway, sadly, he died of cancer in his early 30s. Um, and that's, you know, that obviously changed everything from a kind of a family point of view. There suddenly became this big question, who would take over the the family business. I always thought that I would start my own business and do something entrepreneurial. But I gradually realized, having gone out thinking thinking that it would be uh, fun to do another kind of business, I began to miss the life on the farm more and more. And particularly when I started, when we started a family, me and my wife, when we had our first child, then our second child, you suddenly realize how special it is to be a family living on a farm the freedom and the security that it gives you as a child to be able to, you know, roam fields, build dens and woods, uh, drive tractors at a very young age, do all the things that um, children get to do on a farm is incredibly special. And uh, and so, so suddenly I kind of thought, well, you know, forget about looking to start another business. There's my father desperate for one of us to go back and take the business on and grow that. I should I should do that and uh, and the amazing thing actually was you know, when I was growing up every summer holiday particularly uh, we'd be working on the farm pretty much seven days a week and it was always great fun and I'd look forward to my summer holidays and working on the farm was what that was all about I said after the first year that I came back I said to my wife the funny thing is it doesn't feel like I've had a job since I left my last job because it just feels like I'm on my summer holidays because you know, it doesn't matter how hard you're working. If you're working in an environment that kind of is fun. I mean, for me, that was the summer holidays was working on the farm. So working on the farm didn't doesn't feel like a job at all. <laughs> what kind of things were you doing when you were when you were working on the farm when you were a child? Well, so I mean, so from quite a young age, we'd be helping out with the milking. So particularly, you know, you do milk recording uh, every every month where we would record how much milk the cows gave. And so back in those days, we would have the cows would be milking into the glass jars under the under where they stood. And so you'd record how much milk each cow was giving and you'd take a sample of their milk. Um, and so that's something we'd do from a fairly early age. We also, we also used to always feed the calves in the morning. And, um, 
and and one of the so we'd feed the we'd eat, feed all the baby calves, and then we'd um Aww. we'd get into the old farmland river and we'd load it up with the small square hay bales, and we'd stack it up and it was like a competition to see how high we could stack the bales in the back, and then one of us would drive the land rover and the other one would stand on sit on the back of the bales <laughs> with our pen knife and every time we got to a field where the cows needed hay, we'd cut the strings and chuck the hay out into the field with the cows following the land rover, which was you know unbelievably good fun when you're kind of you know, 10, 11, 12, 13, and you're getting to drive a four by four across wet and slippery and icy fields, <laughs> often with one of your brothers falling out the back. And it was, um, yeah, we, we got up to a lot of mischief in that Land Rover and it was great fun. And then, uh, you know, in the summers, there's, we used to have, we used to have some wheat and barley and there'd be, you know, going to collect the grain and bring it back and put it into the dryer. So driving tractors, I can even remember once it was a very sunny day and I was working on my tan. I was probably more like 15, 16. And uh, as I drove across the particularly nice. big field, I climbed out of the tractor and lay on the roof of the tractor while we drove <laughs> while we drove with no one at the steering wheel across the field towards the combine. We climbed back down and got back oh, into the with seat. No so, driving. With no one driving. No one driving. I was driving. I, I left it with the hand throttle on and climbed up onto the roof and laid down on the roof <laughs> for the five minutes it took to cross the field. That's dedication to a, to a teenage tan, I think. Exactly. But I mean, it says a lot about the health and safety. <laughs> I think... Now I would be more hesitant about <laughs> allowing my children to drive tractors and and uh, and mess around on the farm. But but it is it's a wonderful it's a wonderful uh, experience growing up on a farm. And then and so that was a kind of a big draw. And and just being back here actually, it's been very fulfilling. So presumably you were were you down in London before? Yeah. So um. Well, so uh, I was very fortunate to go to Oxford University, and then after that, I went and worked for a strategy consultancy in London for four years, and then I went to work for Vodafone in marketing in Newbury, and then in London afterwards. So it was actually ten years, and and you, I mean, part of the reason I was doing that is I was thinking that I wanted to work for consultancies and bigger companies to learn how businesses work, really with what I had in mind was starting my own business. And um, and you might think that all of that was hugely valuable for then going back to the farm business. But what I think is most interesting is that the way that it was valuable was that it, it showed me how how people behave in a professional environment, you know, in terms of the organization and communication. And I think often particularly, I think, for entrepreneurial individuals, uh, uh, structure and communication don't necessarily come naturally to them. And But it's so, I think it's so important in terms of morale that your colleagues feel that they're being communicated with, that they feel like they know what the vision is and the journey to where you're going. And I think that more than the the marketing skills that I learned, what I learned about communicating and trying to put some structure on my naturally unstructured approach to life has really been invaluable. So presumably having had that very structured commercial background has proven really useful when it comes to growing the the family business in a professional and really successful way. Yes. Well, it has been, and I, I, I think 
it's easy to underestimate the benefit of spending time in another business. But but if I look at my father, so my father left school at 15. He had never had any doubt in his mind whether, that he was going to take on the farm. He was a son with two sisters, and his father was very clear that he was going to take over the farm. And he was effectively his own boss all the way through. And I think that when you work for uh, big organizations, you see good bosses and bad bosses. You see good organization and bad organization. You see good communication and the effect that has. And you see poor communication and the effect that has. And you also see how consultants and advisors should behave and what to expect from them. One of the things that I was a little bit surprised at when I came back was you know, on the farm, not just on the farm, but in the cheese dairy, and now in our cafe and farm shop, we have excellent uh, employees who work incredibly hard and are passionate about what they do. And they're really the reason for our success. And then I came across advisors that would be charging far, far more than we could afford to pay the staff and who didn't have a very professional approach, that they didn't have the professional approach that I had learned or come to expect from solicitors and accountants and and the various other professional services that I dealt with you know, in my previous employment. And that gave me the opportunity to say, no, this isn't good enough. You know, if you guys are going to charge more than the staff I employed, then I expect a certain quality of service. And I think I think those things, which you wouldn't necessarily kind of the softer things around the edge, they really helped when it came back to the farm and and trying to grow things and and do things um, that would increase the size of the business. It really helped to know kind of what was expected. Can you tell us a little bit about the the makeup of the business because you you obviously do have the cafe on site as well now. So how how many are there? How many people are working for you? It's um uh, including kind of part time uh, staff. It's well, it's about thirty full time staff, and then and then there's quite a few part time staff, both in the cafe, but also part time staff helping us out with markets or helping us out with uh, fulfilling online orders. And and so it's it's quite a it's a surprisingly large team now. And what's nice is there's a really there's a really positive uh, attitude by every member of staff. I like the fact that I I really sense that everybody cares about the business and they're very proud to work for the business. And uh, and I, I think that is crucial to to both the ongoing success of the business, but also what a pleasant place it is to work in. Mm, absolutely. I've worked in, in both. I've worked in organizations where the morale is very high and I've worked in organizations where the morale is very low. And I think if at the management level, you can nail that, it will make such a difference to the kind of the 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 time that the staff stay working for you, productivity levels, and ultimately, I guess that circles back around to profitability, doesn't it? Because happy staff work want to work want to work Does, harder yeah. and, and go the extra mile sounds like a great place to work <laughs> thank you i'd like to ask you a little bit about the cheese um, which is after all why we're here because we all love cheese so your cheeses are made in a traditional way and only with organic milk which is obviously your own milk 
Yep. How important do you think that it is to the flavor that you're using your own organic milk? Do you think that's why your cheese is special? Yes, I think the quality of your milk is fundamentally important when cheese making. And, um, and I mean, there's a number of things about uh, organic milk that makes it special. I mean, firstly, it means that nearly all the nutrients are coming from grass. And grass naturally gives uh, sweet, creamy milk. And, you know, you'll, you'll see now on, on many milk products, people refer to grass-fed cattle. Well, organic nearly always implies grass-fed. I mean, obviously, being organic, there's also some wildflowers in there and there's some clover in there. Um, but that is very important. And that does a lot for the flavor of the cheese. I think the other part of it, though, is that when we say a cheese is traditionally made, what we're really meaning by that is that there's a lot of human touch and feel involved in the process. And milk changes through the year, uh, whether it's uh, you know fresh, fast-growing grass in spring that's got a high water content, or the dry grass at the end of the summer, or the silage uh, which is fermented grass that the cows eat over the winter when the grass when the grass in the fields isn't growing. All of those result in uh, different milk, very different milk with different yield in terms of the cheese, but also slightly different flavours and slightly different properties in the way the curd forms, um, how sticky it is, how crumbly it is, um, and the cheese maker has to be always adapting the way that he makes the cheese in order to get the best out of the milk that's coming through. And I think that is what's crucial to the quality of an artisan cheese. And that is why I think what makes our cheeses special is, is our team of cheesemakers. They're absolutely passionate about the quality of the cheese that they're making. And they're always looking at how the cheese is, how it develops, and aiming to tweak um, how we make it to really bring out the best from the built from the milk, bring out the best from the milk and the best from the cheese. And so I think it's that combination of having really good quality organic milk and having passionate cheesemakers that are using their, their all their senses to basically optimize the cheese making process and, and make the best cheese. By by that, do you mean things like leaving it for slightly longer or changing temperatures? Because, you know, when you sell a product, as you do, that is available to buy in shops and online, and people expect a certain flavor from the, the cheese that they're used to buying. I presume that it's quite um, a delicate process to make sure that that consistent flavor runs through the seasons. Absolutely. And I think, and that is exactly what I mean. So, I mean, the blue cheese, the Bath blue cheese is a great example. So with the Bath blue cheese, uh, it's made to a similar recipe to a Stilton, but made to be slightly creamier and sweeter than a, than a Stilton cheese typically is. And um, there's a number of stages. So first of all, on the first day when they're making, uh, when we make the curd, um, we're trying to produce a curd that the following morning is, um, is of the right consistency. So the following morning, we break it up, we mix it with salt, and then we place it in the cheese mold. 
Now, the cheese mold is only going to be on the cheese for five days. And in that time, the curds have got to stick together, but leave gaps between the lumps of curd to allow the blue the blue mold, uh, the penicillin Roccoforte mold, to grow through the cheese, giving it that blue-veined look that allows, you know, gives you that traditional blue cheese look. But if the curd is too uh, firm, then when you take the, the mold off the cheese, the cheese will crumble. And if it is uh, too soft and squidgy, the curds will settle down crushing out those gaps between the cheese, which will mean that no blue mold will then grow later on in its life. And the autumn milk is fast, will produce a far squidgier curd than the, or it's kind of the, the winter milk, or the milk that's from size will produce a far squidgier curd than the late summer milk that produces a curd that's firmer and will keep those gaps open more easily. And uh, and that's that. That's typically why blue cheese is popular at Christmas, is because people have typically got the best. It's easiest to make the cheese at the end of summer when you've got that consistency of curd. But by when we make the Bath blue cheese using milk from cows fed on the grass silage, um, we stir the we stir the curds more when they're initially cut, and. Uh, and we turn the curds when they've been drained of the way, we turn the curds more in order to get better drainage, which then brings that consistency back to something more like the curd that you typically get at the end of summer. So you're using your sense of feel to test the firmness of that curd and do more to it to try and bring it to the same point. And also further on down the line with the Bath Blue Cheese, we need all the cheeses to introduce air into the cheese to allow blue mold to grow. Um, and when we're doing that, we're doing it with a needle by hand. And if we feel a very dense cheese, then we know there's not many cavities left within the cheese. And so we need to needle it more often to get more air in to allow it to blue. Whereas if when we press the needle in, we feel that it's easy to press that needle in, then we know there's a very open texture inside and it doesn't need so many holes. And by doing that, we kind of, even out the bluing. So there's a consistent amount of bluing between both the denser cheeses and the, the cheeses with a more open texture. So you see, it's kind of with every cheese, you're feeling, you're touching, you're tasting to see, um, to see how the cheese is developing and then trying to bring it back to that consistent cheese that the customer wants. It's incredible to hear that that is all done by real people, um, as you said, you know, kind of touching and, and working with the cheese, because I wonder how much of the cheese that we see in the supermarket is all just done on a factory line and doesn't have that love and care that goes into it. It's absolutely fascinating. Yeah, I think I think that's right. I mean, if you the mass produced cheeses are produced in in sealed vats which is you know, most of our cheese is made in buckets. <laughs> so, you know, the difference is enormous. You know, on one side, you've got a huge stainless steel tank that is completely sealed with, you know, um, paddles and cutting knives turning around in the middle. Mm. And on the other side, you've got um, a group of young people uh, cutting curd in white buckets, feeling the curd by hand and pouring it by hand. So it, it couldn't be 
it couldn't be more different. I want to talk to you about Bath Cheese. So the namesake of your company, I know from having read on your website that the recipe dates back to the 18th century. And apparently even Admiral Lord Nelson wrote about how tasty it is. Obviously, you are based just outside of Bath. But how did you come about making that recipe specifically? So, um, so when my father decided to start doing the cheese making again, which was in the 1980s, he was um, talking to friends saying, look, I'm thinking about making cheese. I'm thinking about making a cheddar. I mean, he was, he thought of himself very much as a Somerset man. And so his natural inclination was to make cheddar. His, his mother and his grandmother had both made cheddar. But at the time, particularly, there are a lot of people making cheddar in the Southwest. And at a party, he met another man who said, well, you could make the Bath cheese. And he was, he knew about the Bath cheese because he was president of the Admiral Nelson Society. And so it was actually kind of Admiral Nelson that led us to this cheese. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, isn't it? And, and what's, I mean, there's a number of interesting things about it, but what I find particularly interesting is uh, that letter from, it was actually uh, Nelson's father that wrote to uh, Admiral Nelson saying, I know you and, Lady Hamilton are fond of the Bath cheese, so I've enclosed two. That was in 1801. And what's interesting is that Camembert, which is kind of the nearest equivalent to the Bath soft cheese, uh, that dates from the 1790s. And clearly Bath cheese was in its heyday mm. in the 1790s. So it really is, you know, I think most English people assume that soft cheese in the UK a kind of modern day copies of a brie or a camembert. Mm. But what's interesting about the Bath cheese is that it was a contemporary of camembert. It became popular at the same time that camembert became popular. And uh, anyway, once my father had been told about this cheese, it obviously sparked his natural curiosity. And he headed off to the Bath reference library in the days before the internet. And, um, and he found that there was four books that talked about this is how you make the Bath cheese, this soft, bloomy rind uh, cheese that would spread easily on bread when, when ripe. And, and so he then started his journey of learning to be a cheesemaker, partly on the advice of his mother, but also really based upon the recipes he found in these books. Um, and so most, I know that most new cheesemakers that I know of have learned how to make cheese at various cheese making courses, sometimes taught by Frenchmen. Whereas my father's cheese making really was entirely from the recipes that had been left by people back in normally the 19th century on how you make uh, how, how you make an English <laughs> soft cheese. Had he actually tasted Bath cheese at the point that he he started uh, experimenting with these recipes? Was there anywhere that was selling it? Anyone that was doing that? No, no. So, so the book said that back before the First World War, there were four different dairies in Bath still producing the Bath cheese. But after the First World War, there was there's no record of anywhere producing it, and so nowhere had produced it for sixty uh, odd years, seventy years, really before before my father started making it again. And so it really was kind of you know like a uncovering uh, a kind of forgotten gem of the past to start making it again. 
And the, the nice thing, obviously, is because the the recipes have been recorded, um, you know, we could still we could recreate it. And one of the things that's quite surprising in our time, I think, is you know, all the time we're amazed at how much our lives have changed since you know since uh, we were children. You know, whether it's mobile phones or the types of cars we drive. Um, but when you look at farming and food production, we've still got uh, notes that my my great grandmother made talking about taking cheese to hmm. farmers markets and uh, and talking about you know how the cheese make making had gone that day or trying her cheese and saying whether she thought it was bitter or sweet. And really, there's in some you know it's one of those cases where so much has changed, but so much has stayed the same. And with cheese making, so much really has stayed the same. That's so lovely that you have the, those old records. And I absolutely love that story. Uh, I studied history at university. So anything that's historical and foodie is is right up my, my avenue. And I just want to say, your your dad taught himself to make cheese and actually has gone on to make award-winning cheeses so whatever he did he did it right and actually my personal favorite of your cheeses is the wife of bath which does feel like an age-old recipe especially with the with the name and the spelling but your dad came up with that in 2000 it's incredible he did but but actually but interestingly that you said because he was the reason he decided to call it the wife of bath cheese is he wanted uh to give it an old english name because what he was trying to recreate was an old English um, type of cheese. So he was trying to hark back to the days before cheese making was really codified. So during the 19th century, cheese making became moved from being kind of what various regions did with their milk to being a kind of, this is how you make a cheddar. This is how you make a Stilton. This is how you make a Cheshire. You know, they, they started to codify the best ways of doing it. Whereas my father kind of reading about the history of cheese making and being a farmer was quite interested in the aspect of making cheese because a farmer making cheese because he was unable to sell the milk for drinking. And so he knew that he'd heard his father, my grandfather, talking about as a boy taking milk churns along the road to um, there's a small uh, shopping road not far from us here called Chelsea Road. And there used to be the dairy that would collect the milk there. And so he would load the, or his father would load the milk churns onto a donkey and trap. And my grandfather would then, as a boy on the way to school, take the milk to the dairy. And when he got to the dairy, they would unload the milk churns and they would smell the milk. And the guy who smelt the milk was there because he you know, very defined nose. And if he thought the milk had started to go off, as it sometimes would at the height of summer, you know, on a really on a hot day, because there was you know, no refrigeration of the milk, then they would reject the milk. They'd say, we can't take this. And they would put the milk churn back on the, the pony and trap. And in that situation, my grandfather as a boy would then have to turn around and take the milk back to the farm. And then the only thing that they could do with that milk would be to make a cheese. And typically, the typical thing that people would have done with milk before cheese making was really codified is they would make a very simple curd, 
And then they would take that curd and they would place it in a cloth and either hang it from a beam or leave it in a basket. And you got these lovely round-shaped, unpressed cheeses. And and that's what we were aiming to make when we made the the wife of Bath cheese. And and so that's why that's why we called it a, a kind of an old English name to represent the fact that this is kind of something of old England. I can imagine your poor uh, granddad then being late for school, having to to take that take that milk churn back. <laughs> and would they have sold that that cheese, or would that have been a kind of a lost profit? You know, they have to um, just make the cheese for them to consume themselves. I think they, no, I think they did sell it. So, I mean, like my grandmother, as I said, she's got notes from going to the local farmers market. You know, in those days, it was just the market. Um, but yeah, so I mean, absolutely, they would have. It, it, what it meant was that it became less time critical in terms of how quickly they had to sell the product. So with milk, obviously, they had very, very little time to sell it uh, before it started going sour. Whereas once you'd made a cheese, it could be sold over a period of months. Mm. And so I, I think that's what um I think that was a huge benefit mm. of of making cheese. Yeah. So it wasn't it wasn't a lost cause. Do you have a favourite? Of all of the cheeses that you make, it's hard, isn't it? I mean, I, I've heard, um, I've heard people in the cheese making business talk about um, how it's like choosing between their children. Uh, how can I possibly choose my favourite cheese? Um, <laughs> but I, and I think it does change from time to time. I think so. If we were to take the the Bath Blue, you know, that's a lovely cheese to have, particularly late in the evening or with uh, fruit cake. Uh, you know, Christmas time, there tends to be a lot of fruitcake around. Mm. You know, I think that, you know, it's a real feeling for me of kind of autumn and winter is to have a bit of Bath Blue with some fruitcake. Um, if you're to take, you know, the soft cheese, if, if you've got a nice crusty bit of uh, French bread or baguette or something, it's lovely to have soft cheese on a crusty bit of bread. Um, and the wife of Bath is so versatile, as you said, you know, you can have it with almost anything. It's sweet. It's um, cleansing. It's, it's really buttery and creamy but i think at the moment actually it's the merry wife which is my favorite it's just it's got such a such a, a subtle autumnal and earthy flavor so this is the cheese that we wash in cider um that my father makes again his tinkering and, and natural uh, enthusiasm for new things he started making cider and um and i think kind of the the complexity of the flavor on the merry uh mm makes it my favorite i just i i just i just think it's it's kind of interesting and different and a lovely flavor when you cook with it but also when you have it uh, on its own it's delicious too <laughs> oh the problem with this podcast is that whenever i'm talking to a producer or a chef or anybody well basically every single week it's like i get so hungry <laughs> Oh, and I always record <laughs> just before dinner time as well. And I actually have um, I have a square of bath cheese in the fridge that I picked up at the weekend. And I think I might just have to have a slice before my dinner as a, an aperitif. <laughs> <laughs> definitely, definitely. Is there a reason actually um, that it's square and not round as you would expect with something like a French camembert or brie? Well, so we stuck to that because that was the original shape I'm not sure. So, I mean, yeah, it was this. Uh, so, the description to all refer to this square, bloomy rind, ah, soft, okay. gooey cheese. 
I think, I mean, I, I imagine that it was just about the simplicity of making a square mold versus a, a round mold. So I, I think that's why it is traditionally, but I mean, obviously Camembert, I imagine that's always been traditionally round, but uh, helps with a, a, a recognizable difference. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. No, absolutely. I, I think, I mean, one of the things that does make it important is that when we are ripening our our soft cheeses, it's really important that we have it in the perfect environment so that those edges don't become dry. And when we built our, we built a new cheese dairy back in, we started using it back in 2015. And we spent a lot of time making sure that the ripening rooms for the soft cheese were just right so that um, it really was the atmosphere of a cave with very high humidity in there. Um, and, uh, and it's, and yeah, I'm very pleased that it, that did work. It, it has turned out well. No dry corners. No, exactly. <laughs> so despite the fact that your cheeses are sold all over the world and have won numerous awards, you are very clearly, first and foremost, a family-run business. And I really love the blog on your website where you talk about life on the farm, anything from your kind of chicken updates. By the way, I have chickens as well. <laughs> um, through to your dairy herd and and obviously in pre-COVID times, staff get-togethers. So how important is it that regardless of how successful you become, that you stay part of your local community? It is really important to us. I think it is sometimes a challenge in a small village to be a growing business. You know, rural villages in the UK have increasingly become the domain of um, older families and couples who are who are looking for a quiet life in the countryside, and so there have been times that I have um, attended village meetings with you know proposed planning consent, and I, I felt like they've turned up with their pitchforks ready for me. But <laughs> on the whole, um, we have developed you know we've maintained a good relationship with the village, and and I think that particularly the cafe and the shop, they have provided something for the village. So our village. It's been a very long time since there was a post office and a shop in the village before my before my lifetime. And by having now a, a farm shop and a cafe, obviously the cafe is closed at the moment and we're just doing takeaways, but it provides a real community a center in the village. And it's allowed us to, we did before COVID, we did a, a village fireworks night um, next, to the, next to our shop, next to our cafe. And, um, and we did open farm Sunday um, on the farm, which has kind of been a replacement for, in some ways, a replacement for the village fate that happened for many, many years, but ceased quite recently. And we also do free school visits. So the local schools can visit. And then going into uh, lockdown, you know, there's obviously quite a lot of people in the village who are in the vulnerable bracket. And so we organized through the shop doing a local delivery of grocery boxes um, That's fantastic. For actually, our village and the next six villages nearby, and I think all those things. I mean, it's what's nice about a business like ours is you feel you can do these things. That actually, you know, we had refrigerated vans uh, that do do deliveries. Um, we've got a a cafe and a shop and a kitchen, and we could make things and we could take things to people who were scared to go out. Mm-hmm. And particularly in those early days with the pandemic, when we were all very scared, but particularly. Uh, I think older couples were very scared and it was great to really feel part of the community. And I'm very lucky to have 
a really dedicated team uh, looking after the shop and the cafe who are willing to throw themselves into that. And and obviously up in London as well, we've we've got a a unit at Borough Market in London. And we actually did a a very similar thing there. So um, Borough Market were trying to organize together to put together groceries and take groceries out to the community. But but the provision that Borough Market had for doing that was very, very limited. And so the two guys that I have working in London, uh, they volunteered to use our vans to then take the groceries from <laughs> it contained very little cheese in there, <laughs> but to take those groceries out to people right at the beginning of the pandemic when everything had first locked mm. down. And that was incredibly brave of them. Absolutely. And it's kind of, you know, there's this time, you know, been talking about things like this, I very much want to point, put up my hands and say, you know, this isn't just me by any means, you know, this is very much driven by the team and my colleagues who really stepped up and said, look, you, you know, this you know, we can do we something here. we can help yeah. exactly so but, and and as you say kind of that is you know once that ethos is there in the company it it's great for morale and all of us feel better for for being part of that sounds like a fantastic place to work absolutely thank you to see if i can get a job there <laughs> <laughs> so we've been talking about all this delicious cheese can you tell my listeners where they can get their hands on some Sure. So um, around the Bath and Bristol area, there are are many places that sell it. So we try and make sure that every deli, farm shop, cheese shop sell it. And and also, you know, butchers like Murray's, butchers on Gloucester Road in Bristol. Um, But in Bath is Nibbles, Fine Cheese, Paxton and Whitfields, at delis like in Lark Hall, but but right over Bristol. And I would encourage anyone who has a a cheese shop or a deli that they like, that if they don't immediately see our cheese, if they ask at the counter, I can guarantee that uh, there'll be a wholesaler or that will be delivering from time to time to them and so they can get our cheese. Fantastic. And you also sell online? We do. You're absolutely right. Thanks for reminding me. So, <laughs> so, so we also sell online um, and online has become so important over the last 12 months. It used to be a kind of a small thing that we would send out a few packets of cheese each week. But now um, now we're sending out hundreds of uh, boxes of cheese um, and we've got an excellent relationship with our courier who does overnight delivery. So people can order up to till 12 o'clock the day before and receive the cheese the following day. We do deliveries uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, although it, it's free delivery if you spend over £25 for a Tuesday to Friday delivery. There's a small surcharge for a Saturday delivery. And then, of course, we also attend all the farmer's markets. So, And the farmer's markets, again, have been fantastic for, for keeping going, a really safe way of shopping during the pandemic because, obviously, there's no ventilation quite like being outside. And um, and so, and we try and attend. So we attend farmers markets from Stroud to Wells, in Bristol, in Bath, and um, I was going to say the nice thing about farmers markets is obviously you get to try the cheese before buying. But actually, during the pandemic, we haven't been able to do samples at farmers markets. But that will be hopefully the end is in sight, and we can start sampling again at farmers markets soon. Mm-hmm. Hopefully, definitely. So I pick my cheese up from Hugo's Greengrocers in Bedminster. In Bristol, they have a good selection of, of very nice cheeses, including including your range. So, for anyone listening, that's really local. Yeah, 
And, th- and those kind of local shops are so important, both in terms of uh, getting food out to the community generally, but also in terms of actually telling the story and knowing about the cheese that they're selling. Yeah, try and get to those those independents if you can. And I try as hard as I can to do most of my shopping through independents. But of course, I know, you know, the convenience of supermarkets does make it difficult sometimes, but everybody can do only do their best. Okay, we've made it. We're on the final question. What's next for the Bath Soft Cheese Co? Well, so it's, it, I, I like to think that we do new stuff every year. So I think there's a, a, a number of things. So on the on the cheese side, what we're looking at doing, in fact, we've started doing, but we're looking at doing more of, is doing um, is doing some mozzarella and potentially some ricotta. <gasps> wow. Uh, and so um, the lovely thing about having the cafe in the shop is it means that when we play with these things, they can immediately put them to use and, and sell them to customers. So, so just uh, today, um, we made about 80 kilos of mozzarella balls. Um, now, some of those are going to be sold in our, our shop. Some are going to Thoughtful Bread, who are going to use on pizzas in Bath. Um, and uh, and others are going up to our Borough Market unit, where they'll be sold as well. So, And that's really good fun. It obviously, is, I think, strictly speaking, it's called Fior de Latte because it's, it's cow's milk uh, mozzarella as opposed to um, buffalo milk mozzarella. But it's really good fun. And, and obviously, that is what many people have in mind when they think of a soft cheese. So it's great to do that. And then the ricotta as well. Uh, you know, we'd love to use our way to make other products. And so ricotta is one way we can do that. And at the moment, we've only made very small quantities. And obvi- and it does also have a short shelf life. Um, and then also, oh, we're dying to get... We built an extension on our cafe not too long ago. And we're dying to get that open again. And once that is open again... We're really looking forward to doing more evening events um, and kind of more more of a restaurant service there. Oh, fantastic. Uh, so, so we're really looking forward to the end of lockdown, as I'm sure everybody is. Mm, yeah, definitely. Oh, that sounds fantastic. Absolutely brilliant. Some more soft cheeses under your belt and, uh, and a great opportunity to come and, and eat in the in the cafe as well. I'll certainly be coming when I can. You're, you're not too far from me at all. Well, Hugh, it's been an absolute pleasure. And as always with these podcasts, I could keep waffling for hours, but sadly we are out of time. So um, all that's left for me to say is thank you so much for joining me. It's been absolutely fab to learn about cheese and and a little bit about the, the history with your family as well. So thank you. Well, Alex, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much. If you enjoyed today's episode, you probably really enjoy my conversation with Tim Mead, the MD of Yo Valley, which you've probably heard of for their yogurt, butter, milk. Uh, funnily enough, quite a similar story in the fact that it's a family-run business and not too far apart. So Tim is out in Somerset, whereas Hugh is in Bath, so not too far at all. And whilst I've got you, as a very final thing to ring in your ears and stick in your brain is that I am on Patreon. So if you go to appsource.com slash Patreon, you'll find out how you can become a subscriber and have access to bonus episodes that are only available for subscribers, behind the scenes, bits and pieces, and the option to put questions to upcoming guests, which is something that you can only do if you're a subscriber. So please do check it out. And in the meantime, you will find me on at the source at Twitter, Instagram, 
Instagram and Facebook. So go and give those a follow. And if you really feel like you want to support me, pop onto iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcast and give me five stars. And if you really, really, really want to help, um, a review would be lovely. Okay, until next time. Bye, guys. Bye.